So hello and welcome to the Justice and Copy podcast. Now, I want to dive straight in this week. Uh, so pin your ears back, all right? This is actually important. On this episode, we have Justine Carell coming in to speak to us. Uh, Justine is the Deputy Police and Crime Commissioner for Bedfordshire Constabulary. She's also one of the directors at Unseen. Now, if you've never heard of Unseen before, they are a charity that provides safe houses and aftercare services for uh, people that have been identified in this country uh, as victims of human trafficking and modern day slavery. They also run the UK Modern Slavery Helpline. So if you recognise signs that lead you to believe someone may be a victim of modern day slavery and human trafficking and you don't know if um, there's enough information there to call the police, but you feel it's, it's worthy of, of recording somewhere and reporting somewhere, then this is exactly the number that you need to have. Um, so I'm going to give you that number now. It's 0800 121 700. Um, I'll repeat that again. Uh, that's 0800-121-700. If you missed it, press the 15-second uh, jump back button on your phone. So that's what they do. Let me give you a scenario. Okay, you're, you're a postman or an electrician or for whatever reason you have access to somebody else's house. And you notice actually that house is in a horrible state of disrepute. And there are it's evident that there's a lot more people living there than, than really that property is designed to take. And I'm not talking about signs of like children's toys that might suggest it's, it's a family house, but it seems there's a lot of adults living there and it's in, really, uh, it's in a really poor um, state of affairs, that property. Now, now, that's maybe not enough to say, oh, well, these are clearly uh, you know, people that are experiencing a condition of slavery. Maybe that's a stretch, but it's interesting. So it's well worthy of actually calling the Modern Slavery Helpline and saying, hey, this is the address. The living conditions are dire. It's well overcrowded. I don't really know who to call, um, but I thought I'd pass it on. Now, that might be a, a missing piece of a puzzle, actually, that's going to be really valuable intelligence. If indeed, that might be a case of human trafficking. It might have needed that little report um, to be enough to put a warrant in and, and release people from slavery. You don't know unless you pass that information on. I'll give you another scenario. Okay, you work in a high street. On that high street, there's a massage parlor open silly hours night and day. It's flipping half past 10 and the thing's still open or one o'clock in the morning, the massage parlor's still open. You've got reasons to potentially believe that there's more than just massages going on there. And you notice there is a van or a car that turns up and drops uh, ladies off at that massage parlor and picks them up at the end uh, of the shift. And they seem to be, seems to be that same car coming and going, that same van coming and going. Why not pass that on? You know, that, that's interesting. Um, that might suggest that, that the people that work there uh, are being uh, ferried there are being transported there by the same individual. There might be a level of organizational control there. There might not be, but there might be. So why not pass that information on? You just don't know where it's going to go. So anyway, that's just part of the function of this 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 helpline and it's independent. It's not you're not calling the police. You're not calling a government agency. It's run by a charity. And it's on that basis that I really want to urge you um, to delve into your pockets. Now, I know the sort of people listening to this podcast are the very salt of the earth. So could I implore you good people to consider supporting Unseen and the Modern Slavery Helpline? They, they launched this in 2016 
and originally they were taking 40 calls a week. They now take over 200 calls a week. It's such, it's seen such growth. People are noticing signs. People are becoming more aware of this facility. So they're using it more. So we need to staff it accordingly. This is a 24-7 service. And unfortunately, if they don't get the emergency funding they need, this is a service that this charity will not be able to continue to support. So it, it requires us um, as a people to respond when there's need like this. So I would love it if we can signpost you as a podcast towards the likes of Unseen and their amazing work running the Modern Slavery Helpline so they can receive um, some well-needed support. That's my bit over and done with. Let's jump into the podcast now. I'm sorry that I went on a bit, but I think that's so important and I wanted to get it in at the start rather than at the end. Thank you for sticking with me. Here's Justine Carell. She's a superstar. I know you're going to love her. Let's crack on. Justine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming along. Thank you. <laughs> welcome to a rather chilly recording studio in London. They've pumped, they're obviously pumping the AC in here today because you've had to keep your coat on and I'm sort of rubbing the outside of my arm. So... <laughs> The normal start to a podcast is we discuss a little bit about coffee. So you're like, your coffee drinking habits, like, are you a big coffee drinker? But before I find that out, I, I, I have a confession to make, right? I, I'm, a com I'm committed to being honest. One of our principles is a transparency at Blue Bear Coffee. So I have to admit, actually, that we're sitting here um, with two cups of tea in front of us. <laughs> which is painfully embarrassing. It's purely because I couldn't work out, first of all, the hot water tap in the kitchen at the studio. And then, um, and then when I finally figured it out, I managed to somehow unscrew the filter on the cavity air. So it, it just ruined, um, ruined the coffee pot. So we're no good, are we? We're actually here with tea. But I brought some cakes Yay. and I, I, fully, <laughs> I fully expect you to tuck in. So I've got the two cream-filled um, croissants here. One is, I think, looks like a sort of custard. The other one's chocolate. Would you prefer one? Do you want to do half each? I really don't mind. Let's do half each <laughs> and make our way through them. So the idea of this, Justine, is that you and I literally were on the teas, we're on the cakes. It's a very relaxed atmosphere, as, as relaxing as it can be at two or three degrees colder than we'd probably prefer it to be in a recording studio. But I just want to find out a little bit more about you. Great. <laughs> even though I'm doing all the talking so far. <laughs> so when I got back uh, in June last year, I came back to the UK uh, having worked in the Dominican Republic and I wanted to do something and you know, contribute something to raise money and raise the profile of some amazing organisations working to end human trafficking and modern day slavery. So I, I looked to proactively increase my network and go along to as many events as I possibly could do. And in almost all of them, you were the keynote speaker. <laughs> I do get around. Flipping heck. Everywhere I go, it would be like, ah, oh, keynote speaker, Justine, Justine Carell. I even saw you on the BBC the other day, on the, the Victoria Derbyshire show. I can't avoid this woman. So finally, we've got some time to sit down together, get to know one another. But I kind of want to know, yeah, know a little bit about you. So where did your journey and I mean, I can introduce you now as the executive director at Unseen, who we can talk a little bit more about later, and also the, the deputy police and crime commissioner of Bedfordshire, where you started the day today. <laughs> so there's loads I want to talk to you about, but I'd love to know where that started for you. Well, my career started uh, when I was 16. So, um, you know, social policy was always a really big thing for me. 
Um, and uh, uh, throughout my career, I've um, worked on various different aspects of social policy. And uh, that culminated in my last job with the Home Office, working on modern slavery, human trafficking. Um, and it was an area that really captured my attention, actually, because it was one of those areas that you knew uh, not many people knew about. Yeah. Um, that we knew that the police response was probably not as good as it should be um, and really wanted to do more in this area. And... Um, Boy, had a bit of a whirlwind, really, in terms of uh, the work that I did at the Home Office and then leaving the Home Office and moving into Unseen as a, a modern slavery charity. Just the opportunities that that has given me um, has been amazing to, to work with some fantastic people in the sector, but also to work with vulnerable people who need our help and support. Yeah. So if I was to take you back to that 16-year-old. You, you mentioned at the start of that that you were always interested in social policy. So I kind of <laughs> find that slightly unusual. You know, as a 16-year-old, I definitely didn't have my mind in the subjects of social <laughs> policy. Like, what was that about? Did you study it at high school or, or what? Well, I think, you know, for me, I was uh, quite a strong-minded 13, 14-year-old. Um, very, very clear views about what I did and didn't want to do at that time. Right. I went to a girl's school, an all-girls school, and quickly realised that actually I wasn't get, getting the same um, opportunities as some of the, the male counterparts in the boys' school. Interesting. And so thought, why is that? I like woodwork. Why can't I do woodwork huh. when I get to year three? Um, and so that really set me on a journey of wanting to try and achieve as much as I possibly can. And that brought me on to realising that there are many inequalities in the world. And so that really set me on that path of looking at social policy and thinking, what could I do? Um, to really make a difference. Wow. And, and that's where I started my, my journey. I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to go to university at the time. Um, I have since got a degree, but it was a, a really kind of whirlwind journey from, from school um, straight into the civil service and then just working my way around different departments and um, working my way up and realising that actually I could really make a difference um, in in making sure that I talk to organisations and agencies and really bring that back into the centre and start to influence that policy. Um, and then when I had the opportunity to leave the civil service after 28 years, which not many people wow. do, <laughs> yeah. it tends to be a um, you know lifelong career, for me, it was really about wanting to make much more of a difference. So the opportunity to see what you could do at the centre, build a framework, but then actually get down operationally, really make an impact, have those ideas, those um, innovative, creative opportunities to really start working with others on the ground and, and start to make a difference. And, you know, it's been a fantastic three or so years uh, with Unseen so far. See, I, I think that's fascinating that even at 16 uh, you had that quite a high level view right rather than maybe think well I, equality means something to me being right being fair you know there's something on my heart about that maybe I'll be a lawyer maybe I'll join the police force maybe I'll do something that might be a little more 
I don't know, uh, maybe a, a coherent or just an obvious response to that 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 part of you. But actually to go into policy is really interesting because that's not where my mind would take me, but it's absolutely an effective place to be, to make large-scale impact, like systematic reform. So, you know, a wise head on your shoulders for a teenager, <laughs> like, no doubt about it. I think my mum and dad would have said strong-headed. but <laughs> Strong head on your shoulders as a teenager, no doubt about it. So what what did that look like? You're 16 years old and you're working in an office when your friends are, at, you know, at college or going to uni or whatever, and you're, you're there. Was it in Manchester or...? No, I moved to London. Oh, wow, what a so, 16. Yeah, well, just outside of London, but um, my first job was in Wood Green in London, wow. um, working in a benefits office there. But just seeing some real-life situations and how, you know, many of the the families and the communities are struggling, mm. you know, without a job, without money, without that community environment, it's really difficult for people to, to kind of get on in life. And when you see the impact of that on their children, that's when you realise that you really need to, to do something. As a society, we shouldn't allow at all anyone to not have a safe home not to have Mm. money in their pocket and for their kids to go to school without a breakfast or Mm. um, without that routine that they really need so Mm. for me that's what really set me on that journey and I wanted to move into policy um, from that but I did probably about 10 or 12 years working on the front line and that gave me such a grounding because when I went into policy I took all of that experience with me And then I would take that back out and I would go and speak to those on the front line. I would go and speak to communities and really make sure that we got that link between what was happening on the ground and the policy and decisions that were being made at the centre, which I think from the conversations that I had with my fellow colleagues, it was quite unique. Many of them hadn't been out on the front line. Many of them hadn't spoken to a benefit claimant, for example, or somebody that was struggling in a hospital. And I think it's really important that you ground yourself and you understand that before you start to try and make those systematic and systemic changes through policy and the influence that you have at the centre. I I couldn't agree more. And I think without maybe taking us off on a totally different tangent, but I certainly think that is reflected in in the politics of today, right? There just seems to be, certainly from my opinion, and I know I'm not on my own with this opinion, there just seems to be a disconnect, actually, between what goes on in Parliament and and sort of the political community and then the everyday person. And there's, well, what's going on over there? And there's some brilliant journalists doing a great job of trying to explain the decision making i mean in the uk at the moment we're going through brexit we recorded this in at uh, the end of august so this is before uh the, the the october the 31st when we've really got to face that decision and it's so it's in the news every day at the moment but it's interesting i think how much time do these people get to spend on the front line before they become the minister of this or that you know do they know uh, i mean is there a capacity for them to go out and spend time on the front line i think they need to yeah i really do and and obviously i've worked with many ministers many senior officials within various different departments and i think unless you can really get people out on the front line understanding seriously what it's all about I think they will always have that disconnect and I think what we need to do um, is is kind of bridge that gap and make sure that people um, do have an opportunity to influence 
that policy because at the end of the day, we're talking about people's lives. Mm. We're talking about uh, the impact of health, for example, uh, we're talking about housing. We're talking about you know all of these fundamental rights that we all have. We we should all have a right to a, a safe environment in which we live. Um, and I think you know for me, I've always tried to get my ministers to go out and actually look at things on the ground because um, really I think that would bring it home. And and that's what it, it did for me really when I was a senior policy advisor in the Home Office. I went along to Unseen to look at the safe house that they have down in the southwest, and I met a woman there who told me about her terrible ordeal, about the fact that she had been uh, forced into exploitation by her own family, and she was in tears. And I was in tears as well because I couldn't understand, and she couldn't understand either, why her own family would do that to her. Mm. Um, and knowing that she would be on a very long road to recovery uh, and that she would need the help and support of organisations like Unseen, not just for a short period of time, but probably for a lifetime, because these situations, the involvement of um, abuse and exploitation over long periods of time has such psychological damage yeah. to the individuals involved... You know, we just have to do everything we can to make sure that one more person is not put in that situation. I think the example I think of is when there was the young boy that was washed up on the shore um, during the, the height of the immigration crisis a couple of years ago when, yeah. when David Cameron was still in office and we were having quite a strong stance politically about what, what we're going to do as a country to respond to this huge wave of immigration and uh, and where our priorities are and then there was this example of a small toddler right and and the that photograph that came out of, of of his body being washed up and it suddenly we we made a bit of a you know made a bit of a turn uh, politically on the basis of that that photograph i mean there could have been a thousand examples of that that weren't documented and didn't hit the papers that were going on on a daily basis but when it did there was a response and i think when we when we look at things in isolation and in sterility, you can come up with a brilliant idea and maybe even house yourself with some very smart people with some great qualifications. But actually, when you go out and meet somebody and your heart melts a little bit and you <laughs> empathise and you go, well, actually, who are we doing this for? What's this all about? I think that's great. You said you talked about being on the front line, you know, in a practical sense. What, what was that as a civil servant being on the front line? Well, that was working in um, the old benefit offices when they when they were first um, around. Do they and still exist now? Is it through the job centre? It's or? through the job centre now. So, um, job centre plus, I think, became uh, or came into being from around nineteen ninety six. But before that, it was the old DHSS offices. Mm. Um, you know, very stereotypically. Um, barriers between um, what were people were termed claimants and the people working in the offices. So it was a very hostile environment, actually. Yeah. And it, it almost felt like we were, um, you know, it was, it was a privilege for them to come in and ask us for money. Mm. But actually, it's, it's their right. Mm. Um, and, and I think we do develop this lack of empathy and, and sympathy um, when we can't put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. And mm. I think that's what I've always tried to do throughout my life and throughout my career. And it comes back to the point of that young boy being washed up on the beach. How would you like it if that was one of your family? Mm. I'm sure a family wouldn't put their young children on a boat 
um, if they weren't desperate yeah. because there is no guarantee that you would get across to the other side. So I think putting yourself in other people's shoes and really thinking about the impact and what that would mean for you if you were in that situation, I think really gives you um, the, the kind of empathy that's needed to think about these um, really you know, societal issues um, in a different way, really. Mm. No, I completely understand and agree with, with what you're saying. So when you moved across to the, the home office... You talked about being a senior policy advisor. Like, how how did you filter into that position? What what was your what was your initial role when you when you took on a job at the Home Office? Actually, I could even ask for those that are unaware. And I have to admit, there's a part of me that doesn't really understand the function and role of the Home Office in this country. Maybe you could give us a high level uh, sort of answer to to what role that that body of of government performs. Yeah, well, the Home Office here in the UK is a bit like any home department. Um, in other countries. So they deal with issues like law enforcement. So they hold the budget and provide the budget to policing, um, looking at safeguarding from a home perspective, counter-terrorism. So a lot of really key um, areas of policy um, and security will sit underneath the, the home department. Um, and, and, you know, it's quite a varied portfolio, actually. Um, they also deal with immigration as well. Mm. So, again, that's a, a fundamental part. Um, and Border Force is a, an agency of the Home Office. And was it a good, you know, a good, good experience working for the Home Office? Difficult experience? How, how would you sum up your... How long were you there for? Uh, I was there since 2010. So the first role that I took up when I arrived at the Home Office was the Police Equality and Diversity uh, Senior Policy Advisor. Oh, wow. um, and so that was a real um, kind of eye-opener for me in terms of not really recognising that the police still had some pretty serious issues around equality and diversity. Yeah. So working with all of the equality and diversity network groups that were set up, the Gay Police Association, Black Police Association, um, Black Women's Association, all of those different associations and working with them to ensure that we could improve the equality and diversity makeup of um, the police in general, but particularly working with the Metropolitan Police because mm. of the the London um, situation. So, right, senior policy advisor, <laughs> jumping <laughs> jumping into into this part of your life, the senior policy advisor for modern slavery at the Home Office. Like, yes. what, what what a what a title, what a responsibility. Yeah. Um, well, it was interesting actually. So when I moved into that role. Um, I was given the role, it, it was actually human trafficking and acquisitive crime. What on earth like, is inquisitive crime? <laughs> well, acquisitive crime is more the, the, the kind of lower level burglary, um, you know, theft from a motor vehicle, that, ah, okay, that type of okay. thing. So it, it's your kind of lower level crime. But um, it was very odd for me that I was given a role that included something that was very hidden, very serious and, and international. Um with something else that didn't seem Relatively to sit very yeah, yeah very well with it huh. so um it was i i only had those those two uh, aspects of the role for about 12 months and then i think it quickly became apparent that um we needed to have that focus on human trafficking it was around the time that we were signing the uh, EU directive on trafficking human beings um, and as uh, the UK we had uh, not signed that initially 
Why was that then? Was it just not, did it not work for us or? Well, it was more around the negotiations. So signing up early to a directive can mean that whatever changes are made during the negotiation process, ultimately you've already signed it and then you have to agree. So uh, the UK decided that it would uh, sit outside of those negotiations and would wait and see where the directive landed. Um, And I think this was particularly around uh, working through the impact with immigration as well. So always that yeah. eye on immigration policy. Um, but, you know, again, it was a privilege to see the UK through the final signing of that directive wow. and, and that kind of kick-started the work in the UK. Um, and I was working with four or five police forces across the UK um, who were really kind of on board in terms of understanding human trafficking we didn't call it modern slavery then um and and really trying to get them to encourage their counterparts the police forces within their areas and regions to actually take the issue seriously um and then pretty much out of the blue um being asked by the then home secretary theresa may to to write a a bill a modern slavery bill. And the premise to that was uh, a Centre for Social Justice report that was written um, and it highlighted 79 areas where action needed to be taken by the government to improve our approach to human trafficking. And one of those was that we should call it modern slavery, we should call it what it is, um, and that's where the term came from. And so from that point in 2013, May 2013, I had one member of... Uh, a team, so pretty much a small team, the smallest team you can get. <laughs> yeah, a team of two. <laughs> um, and over that summer period, started to develop the um, the act principles, what we'd want to see in it. And obviously that's a really difficult process because you have to work with all of your agencies, all the NGOs within the sector, you have to work across government departments, so anything you want to change there are probably 15, 20, 30 stakeholders that you have to engage on each provision that you want to put forward. So I started out with a list of 17 provisions. um, And by the time we got to the point at which we had a draft bill, only five of those were in there. But many, and, and looking back now, 16 of the 17 I had on my initial list made it into into the Modern Slavery Act. Um, One of the key ones is Section 54, which is transparency and supply chains. So, you know, this was a a real issue for me in terms of working with businesses and trying to find out what more businesses can and should be doing. I was working with a small number of retailers and really trying to understand what they needed. And interestingly, many of them were saying we need legislation. We need to be able to have that level playing field so that we can encourage others to do the same, to take this seriously um, and really work collaboratively with us. Um, And so I spent a number of months because uh, transparency and supply chains wasn't in the legislation when it first entered Parliament. And I worked quite hard internally to ensure that we managed to get that in um, at, at a later date. But I think that's the one element of the act that's really kind of held the UK up as a, a world leader. Mm. There were good provisions in the rest of the act, 
But that was the one thing that the international community stood up and took notice of because the only other place in the world that had similar legislation was the state of California. Oh, wow. So um, it was a case of looking at that legislation, taking on board the way in which they had developed that, recognising that that was a one point in time, so it's only ever asking businesses to say once what they were doing to tackle human trafficking, whereas I wanted this to be an iterative process, so really getting businesses on that continuous improvement journey, getting them to think about where they are now, where they think they need to be and the steps that they take in between and since we introduced that legislation in 2015 there are a number of other countries that have now brought similar legislation forward so it's brilliant to be at the forefront of um, international change really. That's amazing and there's that 16 year old again (laughs) right who wants to work in policy. Justin that's incredible you mentioned um, the Centre for Social Justice right so what, what was that and how did that lead to it? The reason I asked is because I understand Christian Guy was involved in that. Yes. Christian is, uh, is the CEO of Justice and Care. We had Julia um, Immanen came on for, as a representative of Justice and Care at the start of this podcast. So what's, I'm sort of basically bragging um, that this massive uh, piece of legislation and the people behind it... Um, uh, you know, I've I've spent time with Justine is in front of me uh, and, and Christian is, is, uh, is a friend too and... Uh, we're connected to them. So isn't that amazing? And what you're doing is incredible. So, And the fact that it's uh, it's reciprocal, right? It's uh, Or that's not the word. What's it when someone wants to identify and go, well, actually, we want to do a version of this. You know, maybe this will work in our country. And that's amazing. Um, well, how are we doing? I understand we, we had a review of, of the Modern Slavery Act. So the Modern Slavery Act came out, what, 2015? Yes. Uh, where are we now? 2019. It was re- relatively recently reviewed, wasn't it? Because I know when Theresa May was going to get out of government, she passed a number of um, sort of ratifications and said, yeah, well, I want to cement these before I leave. I want my legacy uh, to be positive, at least on this subject. What, 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 what have we been updated with? Where are we in today? Well, I think um, just going back to the Centre for Social Justice. Oh, gosh, yeah, I've asked you two questions, one at the (laughs) start. That's fine, that's fine. I've logged the other one. Um, uh, The Centre for Social Justice was was set up. So a a bit like a think tank, it was run by Ian Duncan Smith. This committee was set up to look at human trafficking, the issue of human trafficking. Um, Christian Guy was involved in that. Andrew Wallace is the CEO of Unseen. Sorry, Andrew, I meant to mention you too. (laughs) He um, was uh, one of the editors of the, the report. And so um, two years of work went into identifying how the government could improve its response to um, human trafficking and modern slavery. And then that was the catalyst for, for the act. But through that process, and I alluded to it earlier, it's actually really quite difficult to bring legislation forward mm. because there is a, a process whereby uh, officials need to write to other government departments to seek their approval. So if you have something in the bill that is slightly contentious from health perspective or from a business perspective, then those negotiations, you know, have to take place before you bring that forward. But also there then is still a period of negotiation. So quite often there has to be compromise. Um, and sometimes you don't always get into a piece of legislation what you want to. So I think we did as much as we possibly could within the political environment and within uh, the constraints that we had at the time. Uh, we had a very limited window to actually get the Modern Slavery Act in um, because of the parliamentary timetable. 
And um, for those who don't know, if you don't finish the full process for a bill, it will fall and you have to start all over again in a new parliament. So, 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 so it, when would it be finished? Within that parliament's lifetime? Yes, so, so, so we, we literally had from June 2014 to March 2015, uh, government, uh, the, the parliament was proroguing on the 26th of March 2015 and wow. that was the day that we got royal assent on the bill wow. so it's literally the latest date that's possible within that parliamentary uh, sitting to be able to pass the bill if that hadn't have happened we would have had to go through every single process again which would have been another 12 to 18 months wow. so so you have all of those uh, constraints on you when you're trying to develop the legislation we're trying to get people who have different agendas to agree and come together so the act has been um you know it was great to work on that it was great to be part of of that history if mm. you think about you know the history of the um, Atlantic slave yes. trade and kind of where Stuart William Wilberforce, Wilberforce yeah. yes. <laughs> and, and all of that. And then knowing that this is really, I mean, we had legislation before. So we had legislation in the Sexual Offences Act, which focused on human trafficking for sex exploitation, in the Immigration Act for uh, human trafficking for non-sexual, so other forms like forced labour. And then we had the Coroners and Justice Act in 2010. So part of the role of the Modern Slavery Act was to draw those three aspects together and really give it a very clear focus mm. to enhance the tools that law enforcement has to really tackle the issue and then to look very closely at what victims need. And I think we, we managed to get through in terms of the tools for law enforcement, I think they are quite strong. Mm. It's always difficult because we're talking about some of the most uh, serious offences on our statute books. They now carry potential life sentences. So mm. we're not talking about something that's insignificant. But I think where we missed a trick was really the, the role of NGOs and the role of the support mechanisms that are needed to really support those vulnerable people who are found in those situations. Mm. And so a lot of the act was left to um, future iterations and future regulations that hadn't yet been established because we were going through a period of change and we needed to make sure that what we call the national referral mechanism which is the mechanism for identifying and then supporting people um, was really the best it possibly could be and the government has been working on that over the last two to three years. So we've had these um, various different reviews on different bits of the legislation. I think we really do need to strengthen support around victims um, and the provisions for victims. Um, we, we talked before yeah. this podcast around the fact that, you know, most people would get 45 days and then be expected to move on. Um, and if you think about somebody who has been controlled for several years or several months, unable to go out, not able to go to the toilet when they want to, not being given uh, enough food and being told when they can eat and when they can't, um, and being forced to do things that they don't want to do, including um, prostitution, uh, forced labour in all different sectors, criminal exploitation, being forced to move drugs, um, and also domestic servitude, which for me is pretty harrowing. And some mm. of the cases that we see in unseen and through the Modern Slavery Helpline, it just beggars belief how that can happen in the 21st century in a country like the UK mm. where we've got middle income middle class families 
employing, so to speak, um, people working in their house and they're working 18 hours a day, being forced to live in cupboards, being given scraps of food. Um, and one of the first cases that we came across through the Modern Slavery Helpline was exactly a, a young woman in this situation, desperate because she's had her passport taken from her, not able to leave the family home because most of the time they went out, they locked her in. Um, and she managed to find our number and she contacted us and we actually facilitated um, the police to meet her. She didn't want the police to turn up to the house, so we facilitated um, her to leave um, when she had a window of op opportunity wow. and we actually got the police to get her, pick her up and take her to a safe place. Yeah. Um, and, and it's that kind of... It's that kind of thing that really spurs me on in mm. terms of what I do, knowing that there are still thousands of people that are in these types of situations that, with all due respect, legislation makes no jot of difference. Yeah. Obviously, we need legislation. We need a framework, but it is a framework. And for me, legislation is a blunt instrument. And that's probably why I made the, the leap from the government working as a civil servant into the third sector because I knew that I had lots of ideas and wanted to really kind of drive operations um, both from an operational perspective but also at a strategic level and the two roles that I have now director of unseen and also police and crime commissioner deputy in Bedfordshire gives me that opportunity to really get in at a strategic level and start to influence the decision makers um, within police forces and within wider um, organisations like local authorities, like the NHS, um, and really start to bring to bear my experience and skills and, and knowledge around the issue um, and make it much more practical for people. Mm. This is not something that sh should sit in a box outside and, and be thought of as an afterthought. It has to be ingrained in everything we do because this is just about doing the right thing, mm. nothing more. You mentioned the 45-day rule, and I know on the latest um, in a review of the Modern Day Slavery Act that they've, they've sort of scrapped that or, or, or that's been changed or amended so it's a more indefinite period of time for someone to be given the opportunity to, to yeah, receive the, the state support in yeah. some way. So where, where are we with that? Well, it was always 45 days from, from you know, 2010 when we first started uh, looking at this issue and providing support. Um, but more recently, the Home Office stated that they would extend that to 90 days, so 45 days plus another 45 days. There's been a recent judgment, which basically means that we have to provide support until such time the individual is able to move on right. um, and become independent. Um, and, you know, there have has been a challenge to, to that judgment. So at the moment, people in safe houses are able to stay there until such time we can help them move on. Um, I don't actually think safe housing um, in, in terms of what we offer under the National Referral Mechanism is always the best approach for everybody. Yeah. So I think there has to be an understanding that this should be about need. Mm. There has to be a proper needs assessment of individuals who have nowhere else to go but need that support, um, have nowhere else to go but actually don't need 
um, intensive 24-hour support but need some kind of counselling or outreach support. And I think we need to get better at that to make sure that we give those individuals the best opportunity that when they leave support services that they can become independent, that carry on leading an independent life and that they're not exposed to being re-trafficked or re-exploited. And that's part of what Unseen does, right? That's where Unseen began. I understand. I remember talking to Andrew. I very unfairly left him out of of (laughs) his role earlier on in the formation of this piece of legislation. But when I met him for the first time and I asked him, hey, where did this all start? And maybe maybe we'll get him on the podcast and he can tell his story too. But he, he was explaining, he just went out to his local uh, you know, chief superintendent of the police and said, what can we do to help? You know, and uh, and they said, well, actually, if you're asked, well, we we need somewhere to put these people, right? We, we find these victims of human trafficking. I've got nowhere to put them. And how do we prevent them being re-exploited, re-victimized, re-trafficked? It starts by giving them somewhere that you are safe here. And I think take people need to unlearn or relearn. What does safe mean? I don't know what that means. Um, so, yeah, Unseen, uh, you know, that's where they began. But then yeah. they've, they've moved into a number of other... Uh, yeah, and, and I think that is uh, basically... Where where it all began we now have a women's safe house we have a men's safe house but obviously we run the uk-wide modern slavery helpline we provide reintegration and outreach support as well so we you know we're moving into a number of different areas but with all of that comes this idea that we want to end slavery yeah so you know we always talk about wanting to put ourselves out of business we don't want to be in the business of recycling people through trauma um, and through the experiences that they have and i think that's why i've been so passionate about setting up the modern slavery helpline and really seeing that take off Um, And if you think back in October 2016, when we first went live, getting 40 calls or contacts a week, now we're up to about 250. And we have so many people that are contacting us because they want to know more, because um, they want to raise awareness, because they're concerned about an issue that they've seen in their local town or village or city. And we can take all of that information in. And what that means is we have such a bank of knowledge and information that we do share with the police um, with consent of the caller. Um, But what that does is it allows us to really start to influence and to look at prevention. The only way we're ever going to solve this or resolve it is through prevention activities. And we have this aspiration of ending slavery. Um, Unfortunately, will we ever end it? I don't think we will, because I think if you look at the issue of, you know, murder or robbery, we can minimise it. We can never really completely eradicate it. But what we have to do is make the UK and make other countries around the world hostile Mm. to... um, to human trafficking and to modern slavery um, and really throw the book at anybody who thinks it's okay to abuse and exploit somebody else. Yeah, I think we've come a long way, right? I mean, even the fact that that piece of legislation is only four years old. uh, We had... um Oh, Hazel, <laughs> Hazel, I forgot your name momentarily. She was on the, the show a couple of weeks ago and she was saying about how actually when she started looking into this, she was working as an investigative reporter and she was in India and she first heard about this, this, this the fact that someone had been trafficked from one community in India into, uh, into the city, into Mumbai and sold into a brothel and 
she, that word, that term was was unfamiliar to her at the time, and that was maybe 2000, and I think she said 2002, and people started using that term human trafficking around 2006. Now look where we are, you know, not not much more than a decade later. So I think that's an incredibly positive sign, the fact that we are actually talking about this more. I think the general public's knowledge um, about human trafficking and the patterns of that is increased, but we, we've got a long way to go. Right? Yeah, definitely. And and I think, as you've said, we, we've come a long way, but there's still so much more so that we need to, to do. Um, and, and we need to make it um, an integral part of... Uh, society in terms of uh you know tackling and eradicating this issue and getting people to understand that this is not something that happens to people out there yeah you know we all are members of the public we're all consumers most of us are employees some of us are employers and we all have a responsibility mm. when i go in and i buy my groceries um i want to know that i've not inadvertently created the environment for somebody to be exploited yeah. um, and that's why I'm so passionate about working with businesses but working with them in a positive way yeah. um, the worst thing you can ever do or say to a business is you know if you don't do the right thing then we're going to you know raise the flag and we're going to tell people about you because that's where business then closes in on itself and you don't get the right response we need that behavior change yeah. um, and I like anybody else would like to know that when we go in and we buy our goods and service, uh, services that that we are buying it genuinely on the on the premise that people have been paid the right amount of money for the work that they've done that they're living in or working in the right conditions yeah. um and and that's what we want for for you know our friends our neighbors and and everyone else so you know it's about how we can encourage uh, those who are well-meaning and want to make the right decisions. And then we have to start really dragging those who are the laggards, who are not really interested in doing this, until and unless somebody hits them over the head with a stick. Um, because I think that's the challenge we've got at the moment. We need to do that in a positive way. Um, and we talked earlier about name and, and shame, which I really don't agree with. Um, and on scene, we talk about name and fame because we think it's really important that those who are doing the right thing get the credit for doing that. Mm. And that we can say, well, look where this leader is. Yeah. Why not aspire to be like this business? Why not aspire to be like this individual? And so it actually creates the positive environment within which we can start to build and grow and see that continuous improvement. And they can share that with their, their stakeholders, right? Their customers or, or, or whoever comes to them and works with their business. Hey, look what we're doing. You know, yeah, listen, definitely. Like we've got this. Is there any way? Is there any way they can get that? I mean, there are obvious issues with accreditations and certificates, like Fair Trade or Rainforest Alliance or other ways. But 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 the principles are great. Yes. Uh, you know, is there something we can we can work with? I know that the the, the legislation asks that businesses have a statement, uh, you know, a public statement on their website or somewhere where people can view and say what we're doing at X, whatever, so and so about slavery is this and yeah. this is why it means something this is how we're eradicating it 
from our supply chain. But is there like an, an auditing um, framework where you can go, yeah, actually they are doing that. And we've put it through through our, our lens and we're happy. Let's give them a stamp. By the way, customers look for this stamp. If you're going yeah. shopping, look for this. Are we working towards something like that? Um, yes and no. So um, I think what we need to recognise is that we can never genuinely ever say something is completely slavery free and will remain slavery free because you know unfortunately we talk we're talking about people who are pretty adept quite often criminals um who are infiltrating supply chains for their own benefit so um we really do need to focus on making sure that we've got due diligence throughout uh, business operations and down the supply chain so i know there are a number of initiatives we're bringing one out called back to source which is looking at auditing but from a different perspective around continuous improvement because for me auditing has its place but it can kind of lull you into that false sense of security of thinking well somebody's checked for me ticked all these boxes and so I can just move on Mm -hmm. but actually things change on a daily basis and you know many audits and many auditing firms will tell a business I'm coming to see you a week on Friday and clearly when they turn up a week on Friday everything's okay yeah Yeah. so um you know we need to kind of change that around a little bit and we need to start looking at the kind of issues around uh, policies, practices and procedures, around due diligence, around risk mitigation and risk management, really understanding where the risks are. Um, And you can do that through location. You can do that through the types of of goods or services that you offer. And so it's really just giving practical advice to businesses because, you know, yes, I was part of the, um, you know, the team and, and the people who pushed for transparency in supply chains legislation but I'd be the first to say the statement is simply a piece of paper Mm. and it only tells you what the business wants to tell you and there will be a number of reasons why businesses would not put on certain aspects around their operations or what they're doing or what they've found they wouldn't put that into the public domain for a number of reasons Um, and I totally get that so I think what we need to do is say the statement's a good step the intention is to get businesses to change behaviour, to get the boardroom to sit up and take notice because the board has to sign and it has to be approved by them before it's put onto the website. We still have around 25% of businesses who we think are meant to comply with the legislation who have not put a statement out since the um establishment of the act and the legislation was brought into being so we still have some who say um either i don't care i'll wait until somebody tells me i need to do it even though there's a legislative requirement or may think it doesn't really apply to me um or they really don't know what to do and so they're waiting for someone to give them help and support so we really want to get to a situation where all businesses take this seriously and they're doing what they should is there like a punitive response i mean we talked about the difference between name and shame and name and fame let's encourage and bless and endorse the businesses are doing let's not just um, shame the people that aren't but i'm thinking when you said that you know the 25 percent that are just going well i'm not i'm not going to do anything about it well that's because there's no deterrent right and and um i know with uh, gdpr uh, general 
what is it, general data, data protection, protection regulation yeah. that came in very recently. The, the downside is if you get caught that you're not GDPR BPR compliant, you could end up flipping it. They've thrown, they've thrown the bathroom sink at it. You know, you could get these enormous fines and the CEO, whoever sits at the top of the tree of that company, could even receive a custodial sentence about the storage of people's information and and suddenly you know sales of gdpr consultants go through the roofs gdpr training anyone with that qualification make a fortune going around and teaching companies how to stay compliant with gdpr can we do something similar you know i know it's slightly more stick than carrot but well, guys, listen, if you're not responding, I'm going to stick a fine on you because you've been warned. You've been given all the support yep. in the world. Consequences, you're not complying. So we're going to fine you, actually. Yeah, and the the Act does have uh, it has the ability for the Home Secretary to apply for an injunction to the court. And if a business then doesn't comply with the court order to produce a statement, they could potentially receive a fine, which is unlimited. So it's that hasn't Quite, happened yet, no. No, right? it hasn't happened, and I'm not not sure if it would. Um, I do think the government has an ability to nudge businesses to do the right thing. So we did talk about putting uh, the public sector through the same principles and, and have the public sector comply with Section 54. Um, at the time, it wasn't possible for, for us to do that, and ministers... Um, you know, considered that at the time. There is a big push to, to get the public sector to comply with Section 54. But what uh, the Home Office and, and the government is now looking at is, one, producing a statement themselves anyway, so sh showing that they can comply without the legislation being in place. But secondly, placing restrictions on those businesses who don't have a statement and should and who want to um, bid for tenders to yeah. work with the government. Yeah. So the government will say, if you haven't got your statement, yeah. um, then you're going to be barred. Yeah, um, yeah. And I really hope that comes in yeah. because I think what that will do is send out a really key message that we're not messing about. If you haven't got a statement, um, then you won't be able to work with us. And I think what we need to do, though, is make sure that, because you can comply by saying, we've taken no steps as long as you have a statement, huh. you, you're in compliance. No way. So, again, it's not about how good the statement is or how informative it is. It's just about whether you have a statement. Is it signed by the board? Is it approved by them? Is it put on your website right. with a link on the homepage? As long as you've done all of that, it doesn't really matter how good the statement is. Huh. In principle, you've complied with the legislation. Clearly, the premise of the legislation was to say, well, if we're talking about all sectors, all types of business, over 36 million annual gross turnover, um, then we don't really want to be that prescriptive because we want you to tell us what you're doing and then it to be that kind of competitive element within business that those within the sector will look at the the leader and say we want to be as good as them yeah. and so we'll create that environment where it's a race to to the top not a race to the bottom yeah. um, but unfortunately that hasn't quite worked yeah. um, as, as well as it could and I think partly it might be because uh, there isn't a central government register so people don't really know unless they look um, online at individual companies or they could look at TISC report which is run by Social Enterprise uh, down in the southwest. Um, what's, it, what's a TISC report? Sorry. So TISC report is um, it's a, a register 
of all of the um, statements that have been put out by businesses. So um, it's a company called Symantrica, um, and they actually scrape on the internet and they will take uh, information from those statements and they'll present that back so that if you want to look at, you know, a local high street retailer, you could put that information in and you could actually find that on tiskreport.org. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's it's a really good way of, of being more transparent about what's available. Yeah. Um, the government at the time didn't want to pay to have its own register and felt that actually the third sector would be more appropriate to provide that due diligence and that oversight of what businesses were doing. And obviously NGOs are doing that to an extent, but it's not creating the the environment whereby businesses think that they need to do something more. Yeah. So if you've got somebody who hasn't complied over the last three or four years, unless you actually start to take te- steps to make them do that, yeah. they're going to remain non-compliant. Yeah. So we have to think um, about not kind of, hitting business over the head, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but just making sure that we have enough push yeah. factors to really make businesses think about this. Who seriously. do we need to talk to about this? Is there someone I need to get in here, put under a little bit of pressure? <laughs> well, you can try the new Home Secretary. <laughs> right, I'll, um, I'll put an email in. Pretty Patel. <laughs> okay, thanks. I'll get... I'll give her an email, see if she wants to come on the show. <laughs> we've, we've done exactly what we said we'd probably do and completely used up all our time. But I want to I wanna always look for that silver lining. You know, we've talked about some some things that are some somewhat uh, a little bit depressing, actually. But um, there's always hope, right? And um, what's, what's your hope? You know, what's your hope for this country uh, and these issues? Uh, how can we make things better? I want you to leave me um, with a smile. Well, I do hope that we can end slavery in our lifetimes. I think it will be a real challenge. I hope that we can have more empathy and sympathy towards those who are less fortunate, um, that we embrace diversity within our country because I think it's a a fantastic thing. We've got completely caught up in uh, immigration and we forget that we're talking about people. Um, you know, people who want to contribute to society yeah. in in an effective and positive way. And so I, I really hope that we can kind of come through the next two months. Um, I, I don't want to swear and say the, uh, the <laughs> B word, but, um, you know, 31st of October will be uh, pretty pivotal in our history. Um, and I think um, it, it, it obviously can go one of two ways, but, um, you know, I'm really hopeful that we can still be seen as a country that people want to engage with, that people want to come and work in, um, and that we do continue to contribute effectively to the international community. And what does the future, what does the future look like for you? Are you happy where you are? You're still an extremely busy woman working at Unseen, doing the, uh, the the Deputy Police and Crime Commission, which, by the way, she does for free, I found out when I was doing my research, <laughs> which I think is extremely commendable. Um, are you happy doing that? I mean, I'm sure you are, uh, but but would you would you consider working in, going back to government? Would you consider working in politics? I know I'd vote for you. <laughs> Um, I've been asked that question, but, um, no, I, I, what I really thrive on is knowing that we've still got a long way to go and, um, having those creative ideas that allow you to really think about issues, bring people together, 
Um, I've got a lot of uh, contacts and experience around stakeholder management and business engagement. And so being able to, to utilise that effectively and recognise that, you know, me on, on my own, the unseen in isolation, you know, there's no way that we can tackle this issue mm. um, on our own. So, you know, collaboration is the name of the game. And, um, you know, I'm really keen to um, progress unseen and what we do to the next level and really make sure that that preventative element of the work that we do can start to influence and change uh, behaviours within society policy at the centre, um, but also internationally. You know, I've been um, really delighted to um, be, um, you know, a member of a, a great team who's well-respected across the country, but I've also been out to places like New Zealand, Malaysia, um, the US. Uh, I've spoken to Canadian officials, Australian officials, officials within the EU to impart my knowledge and expertise and experience of, of the last 10 years of, of my life. Mm. Um, and just being able to stand on platforms, a respons responsible sourcing uh, conference, which is coming up in Berlin in October, being asked to present there um, and really talk about what we're doing, uh, not only within Unseen, but within the UK and, and my personal journey. I think it's just an amazing opportunity and um, I want to continue that for the foreseeable. Well, with all of that going on, the fact that you found some time to come and spend uh, spend the hour and a bit with me, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Keep doing what you're doing. I think it's incredible. You are having an impact and, and in many ways you'll possibly never know. So, Justine, it's been an absolute pleasure and thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure too. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> We didn't even touch the cakes. Hey. Did I take this chocolate one with you? How about that for a girl who didn't like being told that she couldn't study woodwork at school? What an amazing sphere of influence she has gone on to have. A huge thank you to Justine for coming on the podcast this week. I forgot to give it at the start of the show when I was talking about raising money for the Modern Slavery Helpline. The website to go to to support them is modernslaveryhelpline.org. I would love it if uh, just a few of you, I'd love it if all of you, um, but if just a few of you went on to that website and, and gave, that would be amazing. What I'm finding really interesting um, through this series of podcasts is actually how to get involved in this issue of fighting um, human trafficking. You don't just have to be a copper or a lawyer. Justine found her influence through working in public policy. And don't we need more Justines uh, working in our government departments in this country? My other takeaway from that chat uh, was about business. Come on, big business. There is a statutory requirement for you to have a non-slavery statement on your website. I just heard that. Saying what you're doing about this issue, wouldn't it be good if you said, actually, we buy Blue Bear coffee and Blue Bear gives them money to the likes of Unseen IJ and Justice Again. There's an option for you. Um, look into it. All of those of you that work for businesses, you're responsible for, for buying coffee. Give us an email. We've just reached the end of our financial year and we've broken even. That's a huge success for us. But I want to make money and I want to give it away. So we need to sell more coffee. 
get in touch. I would love that if you would. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Blue Bear Coffee Co. They are the producer of the show. Um, if you want to find out more about Blue Bear, go to our website, www.bluebearcoffee.com. We're on all social media channels. Find us there too. Wrapping up the show now. Thank you to producer Matt for putting the show together. Thank you to Soho Radio for uh, helping us record this in their beautiful studios in central London. Tiffany and Louise, you gave to our startup fundraiser for this podcast. Thank you um, for doing that. You're enabling us to have these conversations. We appreciate you. That's all for this week. Uh, give us a tweet. Would someone give me a tweet? Make it a nice one. And if you want to share this um, podcast with a friend or your network, that'd be amazing. The more you can do that, the bigger the reach and the spread we'll have. Amazing. That's it. I'm out of here. Tune in in a couple of weeks for the next episode. Peace.